As we approach the subject matter at hand, I want to make it very clear that I realize that there are dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are not going to agree with the biblical evidence I will set forth in this message. So right here at the beginning, I want to reaffirm my deep love for all the body of Christ, even those who don't agree with our position about the charismatic movement and the sign gifts. And because I do love the whole body of Christ, I must address this issue. You see, it is not loving to sit by and watch people get caught up in something that could be very harmful to them in the long run. If you see a person who is headed down a path toward possible harm and you refuse to warn that person, then you are not manifesting love. But let me state it from the positive side. You show the greatest love for people when you want God's very best for them. Now I realize that there are those who will take my words as an attack rather than as an appeal of love. But if they take this message that way, my prayer has been that it will not be because of the way I say things, but rather because of what I say. In Galatians 4.16, Paul said to the Galatian Christians, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Unfortunately, that happens sometimes. But what is so ironic to me about this discussion among believers is how often we are accused of being unloving for saying those who believe in the continuance of the sign gifts are wrong, Yet when those who believe in the continuance of the sign gifts say that our view is wrong, nobody ever says that's unloving. I've never heard that in 30 years of ministry. So let's be consistent. It goes both ways. If we are unloving for saying some Christians are wrong for believing in the continuance of the sign gifts, then those who say our view is wrong are just as unloving. I'll repeat that. If we are unloving for saying some Christians are wrong for believing in the continuance of sign gifts, then those who say our view is wrong are just as unloving. My point is this. It's really not even an issue of love that we are dealing with. It's an issue of what is true. So with that as background, let me state the thesis of this message, and then we'll support it with many passages this morning. I believe that the biblical evidence points to the fact that the sign gifts mentioned in the New Testament were temporary gifts and have passed off the scene. And I want to underline the phrase biblical evidence. Biblical evidence. It's imperative that we not let experiences dictate our theology. It's also imperative that we not let our emotions dictate our theology. Our emotions can be good because they are God-given, but emotions are intended to respond to truth and not to determine truth. So we can't let our experiences or our emotions dictate our theology. I'll add another. Neither can we let results be the determining factor. God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. 
But we don't put donkeys in charge of leading Bible studies today. It's obvious. Furthermore, when Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it as God had said, Moses still got good results. But later God judged him for that action. So the end does not justify the means. Results, emotions, or experiences do not establish sound doctrine. Rightly dividing the word of truth does. So we can't let those other things dictate our theology. Sadly, that often happens under the umbrella of Christianity today. The biblical evidence points to the conclusion that some of the gifts were intended for the edification of the body of Christ in an ongoing manner, but some of the first century gifts were not designed for edifying the body of Christ in an ongoing manner, but rather were to confirm the spoken word of God. As we saw in our two-year study of the Gospel of John, that's exactly the way Jesus used his miracles. He used them as a confirmation of his word. They were signs. Beloved, a sign is not an end in itself. A sign always points to something greater. The sign gifts of the New Testament era were intended for the purpose of pointing people to God's truth, which was being uh, unleashed, revealed, and written down and recorded as the New Testament era moved along. The sign gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament are, one, miracles, two, healing, three, languages, and four, the interpretation of languages. They are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, and 30 as being a part of the first century, but the evidence in Scripture points to the conclusion that they have passed off the scene. I'm going to present the evidence to you this morning, and you can see for yourself. But before we deal with each of these sign gifts individually, I want to establish the fact that signs were connected with the first century apostles and the first century apostolic era. So to begin our time in the Word this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And we are going to need to turn to a number of passages this morning. So plan on doing that. Instead of sort of camping in one text that we go through verse by verse, we'll need to look at a number of passages to develop this subject. Acts chapter 2, verse 43 says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. In verse 42, the word they is used to refer to the people in general, but the Holy Spirit is very specific in verse 43 when he says, Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Skip over to chapter 5 of the book of Acts. Chapter 5, verse 12 tells us, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Here again, notice the precision of the Holy Spirit. He says, Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. He makes a clear distinction between the apostles and the people in general. Then skip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, past the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a very powerful statement in this discussion and on this subject. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul was forced to defend his apostleship because some in the Corinthian church were saying he really was an apostle. He he didn't have the, the office of an apostle or the power of an apostle, the position of an apostle. So he has to defend himself. And as he does, he makes this interesting statement in chapter 12, verse 12. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Basically, what Paul is saying here is this. How can you doubt my apostleship? I was able to do what other people are not able to do. I was able to perform the signs of an apostle. Wonders, signs, mighty deeds. That's clearly a reference to miracles, healings, and those types of things. And then keep going to the right to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, over near the end of the New Testament. Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 say this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, now watch this, and was confirmed to us, the writer of Hebrews says, is confirmed to us by those who heard him. That is, those who were right there with him, the apostles and the others who were there with him. So it was first spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So the writer of Hebrews says, the Lord began speaking the truth of the New Testament era. It was heard by the apostles and those around him. Those people passed it on to us, and God bore witness to their message with signs, miracles, etc. For anyone who is unbiased and objective, each of these passages points out the same thing. Signs were connected with the apostles and the apostolic era. And we know from Ephesians 2 that the apostles were foundational to the church. Go back to the left, back to Ephesians chapter 2. After 1st and 2nd Corinthians is Galatians, then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. As Paul describes the church, this new entity, which was born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he says this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, whenever you build the building, you put the foundation on the first level. That's obvious. Everybody knows that. So if according to this verse, the apostles were part of the foundation, then they aren't a part of the 21st century or the 21st story of the building. We're on the 21st story of this building called church. The apostles were on the foundational level. And again, notice the precision of the Holy Spirit. He uses the definite article in verse 20, the the definite article, the, which means he has in mind the one and only set of New Testament apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets have passed off the scene. And when they did, the sign gifts that were connected with them and their ministry passed off the scene. The sign gifts that passed off the scene are, again I will mention, miracles, healing, languages, the interpretation of languages. So let's consider each of them individually. First in our list is the gift of miracles. Now please hear me. If you happen to have tuned out, tune back in and hear this. 
Miracles have not ceased. Please do not leave here this morning and say, Pastor Brian believes that miracles have ceased. That would be a a blatant misrepresentation. We're not talking about God doing miracles. That's not the subject of this message. We're talking about people doing miracles because they have the gift of miracles. God is still sovereign. He is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants to do. And in fact, he continues to do miracles because every time a person is saved, born again, brought to repentance, that's the greatest miracle of all. When a person's heart is changed, that is miraculous. But the point is this. Miracles as an ongoing phenomenon or as a gift have ceased. Some people seem to think that God intends miracles to be the norm for living, that they should happen all the time, every day. But God's work in history proves otherwise. If you look back in biblical history over the last 6,000 years, you can see that there have only been three limited time spans of miracles. The time of Moses and Joshua, that is the exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land. The time of Elijah and Elisha. And the time of Christ and the apostles. That's it. Limited time span. Miracles had a limited time and a limited purpose in God's economy. History bears out God's plan for the use of miracles. In fact, consider this. Miracles cease to be miracles if they are the norm. They're no longer miracles. And consider this fact. When Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus about their ministries, two first century pastors that were sort of post-apostolic, after Paul, that is, Paul had passed the baton on to them. Timothy was in Ephesus. Titus was in Crete. Those letters that were written to them late in the first century about ministry say absolutely nothing about anything miraculous. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, Titus, make sure you do miracles. Make sure you you use the sign gifts. Nothing at all is mentioned in there. Instead, if you read the letters written to them, Paul simply exhorted them to teach sound doctrine, teach truth, teach Scripture. In fact, do you realize that there is no recorded miracle in the New Testament from A.D. 58 on? Now consider that. No miracle recorded in the New Testament after the year A.D. 58. Even the evidence God left us in the New Testament points to the fact that the gift of miracles had a limited time and a limited purpose. The second sign gift in our list is the gift of healing. Now again... Please hear me and don't misrepresent what I'm saying. God is sovereign and he is omnipotent and he can heal whenever he wants to heal. God can heal in response to the prayers of his people. God can choose to heal when nobody prays for a person to be healed. That is God's prerogative. We're not talking about God healing. We're talking about the gift of healing. The evidence is strong, conclusive, that the gift of of healing has ceased. To give you a picture of how powerful the gift of healing was, look with me at Acts chapter 19. Go back to the left after the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in Acts chapter 19. Verse 11. We are told by Dr. Luke, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. 
This is the gift that Paul had early on in his ministry. This is the gift of healing. However, if the gift of healing was ongoing in Paul's ministry like this, then he was cruel for saying what he did in 1 and 2 Timothy in those pastoral epistles. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 5 for an example. Past Ephesians where we were, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, as Paul writes to Timothy, who evidently had a medical problem, physiological problem in his stomach, The water of the first century certainly didn't help the situation. It was often not very pure, not very clean. And so Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, No longer drink only water. It's obvious from this verse that Timothy, being a pastor, was concerned that if he drank a little wine to help his stomach, that maybe he would be accused of being a drunkard or whatever. So Paul uh, alleviates his fears, his, his conscience, and says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now the question that comes to my mind when I read that is this. If Paul still had the gift of healing that we read about in Acts 19... Why didn't he just send Timothy a handkerchief or an apron to heal his stomach illnesses? I'm not being facetious. If he could send him a letter, he could send him a handkerchief. Just take a handkerchief and touch it to his body and send it to him. Don't give him medical advice. Give him a handkerchief and heal him. And then turn over to 2 Timothy, the next letter. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. Right at the end of 2 Timothy, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesephorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. Now watch this. But Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. You did what, Paul? A friend, a ministry partner, you left him behind sick? My question is the same. If Paul still had the gift of healing like we read about in Acts 19, why in the world did he leave his partner behind sick? You see, even the evidence in the New Testament points to the fact that the gift of healing was only temporary early in Paul's ministry and ceased in time. I'll tell you something. The shows we see going on today are nothing like the true gift of healing that was present in the early days of the New Testament era. Nothing like it. Why don't the supposed healers of today ever have their healing shows in hospitals? Why not go to Mayo Clinic Why not go to the local hospital? Why why are they always held in big churches, auditoriums, stadiums? I'll tell you why. Because it's a show. And it is far removed from the true gift of healing that was present in the early days of the New Testament era. The third sign gift on our list is the gift of tongues or the gift of languages. Acts chapter 2 is the passage of primary reference. Go back to the fifth book of the New Testament again, the book of Acts chapter 2. This is the birth of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit to baptize the believers into the body of Christ. And Dr. Luke tells us in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. 
And suddenly there came a, a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language or each one in our own dialect in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them speaking in our own languages the wonderful works of God. Now, the reason why I read the entire account is because I want you to see it is patently obvious from this text that the gift of tongues was the gift of languages. It was a known language. It was unknown to the speaker. That's why it was miraculous, but it was a known language. In 1 Corinthians 12.10, Paul refers to many kinds of languages, and the Greek word that he uses there means a variety of languages. Understand something. There aren't varieties of gibberish. Gibberish is gibberish. But the gift of languages involved different kinds of known languages. And when Paul refers to the interpretation of languages in 1 Corinthians, he uses a word that means to translate something. You translate another language. The point is this, the gift of languages was exactly that. It was the gift of languages. And the same Greek word that is used right here in Acts 2 for tongues or languages is used throughout 1 Corinthians when Paul addresses the same topic. So let me say this as clearly as I can say it. The gift of tongues in the Bible was the gift of languages. Let me say it again. The gift of tongues in the Bible was the gift of languages. Say that with me. You ready? The gift of tongues in the Bible was the gift of languages. Some will object to that by referring to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13.1 where he talks about, if I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels. But the problem with that kind of interpretation is that verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13 are all hypothetical. The whole tone of the passage. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 13. After Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, did Paul understand all mysteries and all knowledge? No. Did he ever move mountains? No. Did he bestow all of his goods to feed the poor? No. Did he give his body to be burned? No. All of those things are mentioned in this same passage. 
So you can't pull the phrase tongues of men and of angels out of 1 Corinthians 13.1 and build some kind of supposed doctrine on the tongues of angels when the entire context is hypothetical and purposely exaggerated. The tongues spoken in Acts 2 were undoubtedly extant languages. So what was the purpose of that miraculous event? You might find it interesting to hear that the only, the only specific purpose for tongues stated in the Bible is found in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. Don't be immature in your understanding of this subject. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, and here we have a quote out of Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, here's Paul's conclusion, Therefore, tongues or languages are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. I want you to notice that statement because this is the only time in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit specifically states the purpose of the gift of languages. And he says it was a sign to unbelievers. And the quote from Isaiah 28 lets us know it's a sign to unbelieving Israel. The quote from Isaiah 28, 11 and 12 was a statement that God used all the way back there to tell the Jewish people, judgment is coming, and here's how you will know judgment is coming, when you hear other languages spoken around you. So the quotation in verse 21 from Isaiah 28, 11 and 12 indicates that the sign to unbelieving Israel was a sign of coming judgment. So, to remove the gift of languages from the context of unbelieving Jews is to transfer it to a context that doesn't have biblical basis or purpose. And if you don't understand that, then the next verse won't make any sense to you. Verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with languages, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Now, maybe you're wondering, hold it, I thought you just said tongues are for a sign to unbelievers. But here Paul says unbelievers who hear tongues will say you're crazy. How does that fit? Remember, tongues were a sign to unbelieving Jews. But Corinth was not a Jewish city. It was a Gentile city with a Jewish synagogue in it. So, for the most part, there was no need for the gift of languages. But since there was a Jewish synagogue in the city, Paul did not forbid to speak in languages because there might have been an occasion when it would meet its God-intended purpose to unbelieving Jews. So the the problem Paul addresses here in verse 23 was that non-Jewish people were coming into this assembly and thought these Christians were crazy Because the unbelieving Gentiles were being exposed to a spiritual phenomenon God never intended for them. Even in Acts 10, when the Gentiles spoke in languages, it's important to remember that they were Gentiles in the Jewish city of Joppa, and the purpose was as a sign to the unbelieving Jews all around them. And in Acts 19, when it mentions the gift of languages in Corinth, the very next verse connects the phenomenon with unbelieving Jews because it says, quote, And Paul went into the synagogue 
and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Beloved, the point is this. The Holy Spirit makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 14, that the purpose for the gift of languages was as a sign to unbelieving Israel of their coming judgment. So that begs the question, when did God judge the unbelieving Jews of the day? You should know the answer to that. The answer is A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, God, through the Roman army, destroyed Jerusalem, and God stopped dealing with Israel as a nation, and he will return to them after the church is completed and gathered. So the gift of languages has no purpose today. There are no longer ongoing signs to Israel of their impending judgment. And that is why the gift of languages is is mentioned only in the earliest New Testament books and why there is historical evidence that the gift of languages did cease. Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, Origen, all considered tongues a remote practice. Foreign. Cleon Rogers said, quote, It is significant that the gift of tongues is nowhere alluded to, hinted at, or even found in any writings of the post-apostolic fathers, end quote. That is, the people who lived after the apostolic era said, this, this stuff that we read about in the Bible, the, the gift of languages, it doesn't happen anymore. It's gone. In fact, to illustrate this point, teaching on 1 Corinthians 12, which has a lot to say about the gift of languages, Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, however you prefer to pronounce his name, said this, quote, this whole place, this whole passage is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place, end quote. Teaching on Acts 2.4, the passage we looked at a moment ago where they all spoke in languages. Augustine said, quote, In the earliest times the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spake with tongues. These were signs adapted to that time. That thing was done for a betokening. That thing was done for a sign, and it passed away, end quote. Beloved, the gift of languages has served its purpose and has passed off the scene. Now, God may still choose to give someone the ability to speak in a language he's never studied. Sure, God can do whatever he wants to do, but it's not the norm. If the gift of languages is still the norm today, then why have missionaries spend thousands of hours learning other languages when they don't need to study them? Just give them the gift of languages. Why study Arabic? Why study Swahili? Why study Farsi? Just get the gift of languages and you can speak it. The gift of languages is not an ongoing gift because its purpose was as a sign to unbelieving Israel. According to Romans 9 through 11, God has blinded Israel. He has hardened Israel. He has judged Israel temporarily, set them aside. There's no need for any signs to them today. That is not God's focus. His focus is not on the Jews today. His focus is on the Gentiles, which is why it is so ridiculous when you hear Christians try to say that we, the Gentile church, we are the new Israel, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. We're not Israel. Israel is in unbelief. Israel has been judicially hardened, judicially blinded, so there's no need for any signs to them. And that's why Paul introduces this section like he does in verse 20, where he says, Brethren, don't be children in understanding. However, in malice be based, but in understanding be mature. Don't be immature in your understanding of this issue. 
Spiritual immaturity is to ignore the purpose for which a gift was given and to use it for another purpose, which is what we see all around us today under the umbrella of Christianity. So what about a private prayer language? I know this question comes up. The view that says the gift of tongues is a private prayer language is based on one or two very questionable interpretations of verses found in 1 Corinthians 14. I, I wish we had time to go through these, but we don't. If you're interested, you can, you can get the material from the 1 Corinthians series on them. But let me just summarize it by saying this. That view ignores the fact that the gifts are given for the benefit of others, not for personal benefit, individual enjoyment, or private use. If God has given me the gift of teaching, should I go in my closet and teach myself? No. If God has given you the gift of mercy, should you go in your closet somewhere and show mercy to yourself? No. The gifts were given for others, not for personal enjoyment or private exercise. The gift of languages was no exception since it too was intended to be spoken publicly and followed by an interpretation as Paul specifies in 1 Corinthians 14. So if you twist 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 9 to say otherwise, then you are ignoring the context, you are ignoring the development of Paul's argument, and you are ignoring the clear principle stated in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 that the gifts are given for the profit of others. Furthermore, let me say this. If a private prayer language were really as important as some Christians say it is, then don't you think God would have said a lot more about it in the New Testament? What about Romans? Why not talk about it in Romans? Or what about Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude. Why only talk about it in 1 Corinthians 14 to a church that was the most carnal church in the first century that needed rebuke and correction? If a private prayer language were really as important as some Christians say it is, God would have said way more about it in the New Testament, and he would have made himself clear when he supposedly addressed the issue, not two obscure statements in 1 Corinthians 14 where the whole tone is correction and rebuke. Now, some of you are probably asking the question, well, if the true gift of languages has passed away, then what is the source of what is going on today? There are at least three possible sources for the tongues spoken today. One possibility is that it is learned behavior or faked behavior, mimicked, imitated behavior. I know for a fact that this is true of many people today who speak in tongues because they have told me themselves. I'm not making assumptions. They've told me directly. They say they just... Just mimic it, imitate it, learn how to do it with practice. After all, there are churches and books that will teach you how to speak in tongues. And that fact in and of itself proves that much of it is just learned or faked or mimicked or imitated. Anybody can learn to do it. You see, there is a, a tremendous pressure within some circles of Christianity to be one of the haves instead of one of the have-nots. Tremendous pressure. So people bend to that pressure and they just do it. They learn how to do it, they imitate it, they mimic it, they fake it, whatever. A second possible source of what we see happening today is that it's psychological or emotional or whatever term you want to use here. On many occasions, people whip themselves into an emotional frenzy in order to be able to speak in tongues. They will repeat a word or a phrase or a syllable over and over again as a prelude to speaking in tongues. 
I remember years ago talking with an emergency medical technician, an EMT, and he described to me some, a fairly common phenomenon in his line of work that they call, EMTs call, automatism. He said it is when people get in an emotionally charged situation, like maybe a car accident or some other traumatic event, and their emotions take over their speech and they begin saying things they don't even understand. They don't even know what they're saying. That's why it's called automatism. Their speech mechanism automatically takes over. And this is very common in this, this arena. Just two weeks ago, two weeks ago uh, yesterday, I heard a preacher teaching a group of people how to speak in tongues. And he gave them a phrase or a syllable to repeat. And he said, now, I want you to repeat this. And I want you to say it as fast as you can. So all the audience started doing that. And they were saying it. And he was going faster, 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 faster. If I put a gun to your head, you would say it even faster. Well, of course you would. That's the, the, the way you can whip people into an emotional frenzy in order to get them to speak in tongues. A third possible source of what we see happening today is that it is a counterfeit of Satan. Satan has always been a counterfeiter of God. Whatever God does, Satan wants to counterfeit. According to Revelation 2.9, Satan has counterfeit churches. According to 1 Timothy 4.1, he has counterfeit doctrine. According to 2 Corinthians 11.13, he has counterfeit apostles. He has the whole deal the whole package. Churches, apostles, doctrine. And remember, Satan's fall was a, was a result of his desire to counterfeit God when he said, I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. I'm going to do what God did. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, Satan will empower the Antichrist to perform miracles, signs, and wonders as a counterfeit of what Jesus did when he was here on earth. Satan is a master counterfeiter. So it shouldn't surprise us to see Satan counterfeiting the true gift of languages that was operational in the first century. And then the fourth and final sign gift mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 is the gift of interpretation. It's interesting to note that in our modern-day emphasis on the sign gifts, hardly anyone, maybe it would be more accurate to say, no one exalts the sign gift of interpretation of languages. No one. But just think for a moment about the amazing nature of that gift. It was the ability to interpret or translate any and every language without ever having done any study in that language. No wonder that's a sign gift or a miraculous gift. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 27. It says this, If anyone speaks in a language... Now, here's the Holy Spirit's inspired instruction. 1 Corinthians 14, 27. If anyone speaks in a language, let there be two, or at the most three. Beloved, if you're ever in a service and four people speak in tongues, it's not from the Holy Spirit. You can just cancel the whole thing out and say, the Holy Spirit isn't here, because he's the one who said two. Or at most three. And then he said, each in turn. If you're ever in a setting where you hear more than one person supposedly speaking another language at the same time, you can immediately in your mind say, this is not from God. God isn't doing this. Because the Holy Spirit says two. At most three. Each one in turn. Now here's the amazing thing. And let one interpret. The Greek text is clear here that one man was to do all the interpreting. In other words, regardless of whether one, two, or three people spoke in various languages, one man was to interpret all of those languages. Now, in case it's still not clear to you, let me illustrate it. 
Let's say we were gathered here, and someone over here in this section stood up and began speaking in Swahili. All right? And then Chad down here in the second row stood up and interpreted, translated that language for us. All right? Then someone here in this section stands up and speaks in Farsi. Guess who has to translate that for us? Chad does. And then someone over here stands up and speaks in Turkish. Guess who has to translate that language for us? He does. The same person has to translate. Why? Because that would prove that this is from God. If one person can translate all three languages, never having studied it in them, that would be a miraculous sign from God. That's an amazing gift. Just think about the ability to translate every language in the known world, whatever language a person spoke. I don't know if anyone today, in all my years of exposure to the charismatic movement, I don't know of anyone today who claims to have this gift. Because if he did, he could easily be proven wrong. All you have to do is line up people, speak French, German, Swahili, whatever language, say translate that. Eventually they're going to blow it. They're not going to know the language. No one today can interpret every known language in the world. And that is because the gift of interpreting languages has passed off the scene along with all the other sign gifts. Now, why am I saying all of this? Am I saying this to attack our brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement? Absolutely not. Am I saying this to cause division? Absolutely not. But God in his word has mandated me to teach the whole counsel of God and to warn the flock about doctrine that cannot be supported biblically. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, the church that was so much into sign gifts, he said, but I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If Satan was doing that in that day, then we're awfully naive if we think he's not doing the same thing today. And again, I repeat, it's significant that Paul said those words to the Corinthians who were so into signs and wonders and mystical experiences. Satan had subtly sidetracked them, and that's my fear. I'm afraid that some of you will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ into seeking signs, wonders, and mystical experiences. In Matthew 12, 39, Jesus said this, An evil... An adulterous generation seeks after a sign. That's a remarkable statement. An evil and adulterous people seeks after a sign. I've seen this happen many times through the years. I've seen people move away from seeking Christ in his word. They've moved away from that to seeking signs and wonders and mystical experiences. If that does happen with you, I don't want to be guilty before God of not having warned you. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow our heads together in closing, just thinking about what we have seen in God's word this morning and what we have heard, I want to give you that challenge that I close with. Even if you're not inclined to be one who seeks after a sign, It doesn't have to be that that's the only way Satan can sidetrack us. But listen to that statement again from 2 Corinthians 11.3. And don't limit it to those who seek signs. Just look at your own life and think, has this happened with me? Or 
Is there the potential this could happen? Paul said this, I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That can happen with any of us. Whatever the particulars, we can very easily be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So look at your life this morning. Is your devotion to Christ, the purity and simplicity of your devotion to Christ, stronger than it has ever been? Or have you allowed something to to lead you away from that, to lead you astray from that? And if you're here today without a relationship with Christ at all, then obviously you can't be led away from a pure, simple devotion to Christ because you don't have it. You've never had a devotion to him. But that can change this morning. If you will humble yourself before God, repent of your sin, let go of whatever is holding you back, surrender your life to Christ so that you have a simple and pure devotion to him. Just tell him right now in the quietness of your own heart, Lord Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to turn my life over to you. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me, change me, make me who you want me to be. Turn to Christ in simple, childlike faith. And he will hear you. He will receive you. Father, it's, it's really been a, a, in some ways an unpleasant task this morning to have to uh, address these issues, but we have to. As Paul said to the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul was able to say, I I didn't avoid any topics. I, I hit everything that needed to be hit, covered everything that needed to be covered. And that is our mandate as well. And so even though it's unpleasant sometimes to to warn and to rebuke or to correct, it's necessary. And certainly in our day and age, this topic is, is a, a necessary one to address. May we have biblical clarity, biblical understanding, and at the same time, biblical charity as we consider this very important topic in our day and age. Grant us, as Paul said to the Corinthians, that we're not children in understanding. In malice, we should be babes, but in understanding, we need to be mature. May that be true of each and every one of us gathered here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.